comes to us in John 9. And in preparation for that, let us read together the, the beginning of John's gospel. Those familiar words about Jesus Christ as, as the Word of God. And here he introduces also a theme of light and darkness, which is a very important theme in the Gospel of John, and it also comes out in our text this morning. So we'll read John 1, verses 1 through 18. This is the, the Word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And now let's turn together to John 8. This will provide some context for our passage. And so we'll read John 8, and we'll start at verse 48, and we'll continue to 9, verse 12. So John 8, John 8, verse 48, and we'll continue to 9, verse 12. So Jesus, has, Jesus was at the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, and He declares that He's the light of the world. And in doing so, and he's, in a, he's in a discourse with the Jews, and then the Jews start interrogating Him almost. And we're kind of parachuting in the middle of that. So after some conflict of the Jews, they answered him and said, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abram died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. 
It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abram rejoiced that he, was, that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jew said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abram was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. So far, the reading of God's Word, and as I mentioned, our text our text is the verses 9 through 7, and since we have read that together, we will proceed to the proclamation of God's Word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, during my undergraduate studies in philosophy, one of the topics that we discussed was the topic known as the problem of evil. And the problem of evil is an argument that is typically used to deny the existence of God, or at least to suggest that it is, His existence is highly improbable. And so what the argument does, it looks around at the suffering in this world and says, okay, if there is a a God who is mighty and if there's a God who is loving and has power and cares about the world, then there wouldn't be any evil. But look, look around you. There is evil, there is suffering, and so there's no God. Now, you don't need to be a philosopher to think such thoughts. As we prayed about, we live in a world which is full of darkness, with brokenness and sin. A quick survey of news headlines makes that point very clear. If you just think globally of what's going on in the world, you can think of the ongoing war in Ukraine. We can think of the abject poverty and oppression of the North Koreans under that communist rule. 
And you can think of all the, the natural disasters that have decimated towns and villages. You can think of uh, the persecution of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. But it's not just out there, isn't it? If we start thinking closer to home, we quickly recognize that there is suffering and there is brokenness. That, there is, that even in our own homes and even in our, our extended communities, there is death. There's people suffering with cancer and illness. There's people with suffering from disabilities that, that can hinder their life experiences. There is brokenness in the, in the family relationships. There's divorce. There's family conflicts. There's strained relationships. There's abuses of power. There's so much suffering. And amidst all of that, we, even though we believe in God, sometimes we can, we can ask why. Why would God allow this? And especially if maybe this, we're here this morning and we are suffering, we can say, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my family, to my community? And so we can, we can almost wonder, where is the light in all the darkness? Brothers and sisters, in the passage that we have before us, the Gospel of John points us to our Savior Jesus Christ. As I mentioned at the beginning of John's Gospel, the, the Apostle describes Jesus, the Son of God, as the light shining in the darkness. And now that theme of, of light shining in the darkness goes through the whole Gospel. But we see it especially clear in our text this morning where Jesus shines light into this blind man's eyes. And in so doing, He he displays the work of God in the darkness of human suffering. And so the Gospel of Jesus Christ comes to us under, under this theme, Jesus displays God's work in the darkness of suffering. And to flesh that out, we'll see three things. Firstly, we'll see the disciples in the dark, and then we'll see God's purposes for the dark, and then Jesus overcomes the dark. So firstly, then, is the disciples in the dark. So back to the undergraduate studies. In response to the problem of evil, you will read of various philosophers, and they they come and they, they put forward an argument in response to try to defend God. And these are often known as, as what is called theodicies. Now, it's, a, it's a, a philosophical term, but essentially it's to vindicate God. It's an argument to explain why God permits suffering, why God allows evil to exist. Well, in our text, we see the disciples have their own sort of theodicy, you could say. They have their own explanation as to why evil exists and why God permits it to exist. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has just celebrated the the Feast of Tabernacles at the temple. Now if you recall, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was one that was a celebration of the Exodus, of God's mighty work of bringing His people out of Egypt and specifically providing for them in their wilderness sojournings. And so Jesus has declared that He is the light of the world at that, that, that feast. And now He's in the temple. And then He gets into this, this discussion with the Pharisees. And things become heated. And in the end, Jesus leaves the temple because of they're about to stone Him. And after leaving the temple, He's, he's walking around Jerusalem with His disciples. 
And the disciples and Jesus, they pass by a blind man begging. A blind man. The text tells us that he was blind from birth. And the disciples, they walk past this man and they see him and they see his suffering and, and their heart goes out to him. And they start to think, they start to think, why is this man suffering? Why is this man suffering? And so that prompts them to ask the question, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? Did this man sin or or did his parents that he's born blind? Essentially, they're asking, of all the, the babies that are born with vision, this guy was born blind. Why? Did someone sin? And as you can see, behind that question, there is, there is an assumption that sin leads to suffering. So for the disciples, the answer, you could say, to the problem of evil for them was, it was our rebellion against God. And this is true. And this is true to a degree. And so their theology said, God rewards righteous people and He punishes evildoers. And so the logic behind their question is this. So sin leads to suffering. This man is suffering. So who sinned? Someone sinned. Now the question is who? Was God punishing this man for his sin or was God punishing his parents for their sin by giving them a child who is disabled? Now before we we rise and maybe condemn the disciples for their thoughts, we have to acknowledge that we've probably had the same sort of reasoning ourselves. Isn't it true that we can often do this sort of reasoning? When I was, I was younger, I heard of a family in one of the churches back home in Australia, and they were going through financial ruin. They had to, they had to declare that they were bankrupt. It was a difficult, difficult time for this, for this family. They, they lost everything. And I remember hearing people saying, well, it's, it's because of bad stewardship, or it's, it's because of mismanaging of their money. And if you just think about those comments underlying that is the, is the, the implication is the financial loss that they have uh, received or have suffered is directly connected to their sin, to their moral failure. But we do the same thing, don't we? Just think of, just think of the first, your first thoughts when you see someone who's homeless now, we can often, our hearts can go out to them, but don't we often have this thought of, well, he's homeless for a reason. And if he just got his act together, he wouldn't be homeless. And so we can do the same connection. This man is suffering. Well, he's suffering because of his moral failure. And then we can also do it in our own personal lives. And sometimes we can try almost to manipulate God because we think, okay, well, God, he punishes sin with suffering, but he blesses people who are righteous. And so we can try to manipulate God. And we can almost think, oh, something bad is going on today. It must have been from something that happened maybe last week or even even months before. Now, why might the disciples have thought this? Why Why do we often think this way? Well, the disciples may have thought of Psalm 1. Now, we sang that psalm together. And that psalm paints the picture of the righteous man. And we just sung it together, and and there the the picture is of uh, the righteous man. He is growing. He's like a tree. He's flourishing. And then we sang about the wicked. The wicked, they're like chaff. 
They're just blown away in the wind. So the righteous, they have deep roots. They are flourishing. There's fruit on their trees, you could say. Things are going well. It says in Psalm 1, In all that he, that is the righteous man, does he prospers. But then it says about the wicked, it says, The wicked are are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And so the psalm seems to connect a quality of life to righteousness and then a lack of a a sort of suffering in life to wickedness. Or maybe the disciples thought of the book of Numbers or they thought of Miriam. In Numbers 12, you may remember the Israelites are going through the wilderness. There is this constant accounts of them grumbling. And on one occasion, Miriam rises up against Moses and accuses him of, uh, of, of taking his authority and, and using it for his own benefit. And what happens? What happens in that account in Numbers 12? Well, Miriam breaks out with leprosy. Now, she's later healed, but you can see the connection. Sin leads to suffering. So don't sin and you won't suffer. But what we see in Jesus' response is not a complete denial that this is true. He doesn't deny that there's a connection between suffering and sin. But he denies that it is true in every situation. You see, the problem for the disciples wasn't that they connected sin to suffering. The problem was they made sort of a causal relationship, a strict one-for-one. That you, you see it in their reasoning with the man. The man's blind, someone sinned, who sinned? And it is true. We suffer because of sin. We suffer because of the effects of the fall. And sometimes it is true. Sometimes we suffer. We suffer the consequences of our own moral failings, failing, failing, failures, I should say, and sins. But other times it's not always true. It's not always true. Sometimes we suffer because of the sinfulness of others. Or we suffer simply because of the brokenness in this world. We suffer from diseases like cancer. We suffer from different infirmities in the body. Our body breaks down. We suffer because of the brokenness of the world. And so Jesus says, no one sinned that this man is blind. It wasn't that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus is reorienting them. He's, he's getting them to move their perspective instead of focusing on what caused the blind man's suffering. He's moving them to think about what God is doing in this blind man's suffering. Suffering, Jesus says, is an occasion for God's work to be displayed in our lives. You see, for those who are in Christ... Our suffering is not a punishment for sin because Jesus has taken that punishment, hasn't He? He has taken that on the cross. He has suffered. He was bruised for our afflictions. He was pierced, what does it say in Isaiah 53, for our transgressions. And so our suffering is not a payment for sin, but rather, as we read in 1 Peter, it's the means by which God refines us for His glorious purposes. It's, it's an occasion for Him to display His work. 
As it says in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a reason. So there's a purpose for suffering. But what, what is that purpose? Why does God allow suffering in our life? Why did God allow this man to suffer in this way? So Jesus says it wasn't that he sinned, it wasn't that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God was not punishing this man. That's what Jesus says. That's not the reason. This man is suffering, Jesus says. He's suffering to display the works of God in him, to reveal the glory of God in the darkness of this man's life. He is saying that God saw fit to allow blindness to exist in this man's life in order that his life would be a platform, you could say, to shine forth God's glory through Jesus. And so you can think of it like this. It is the, you can think of it like this. It's, it's the shades or those dark colors on a white canvas that helps us see the picture clearly, isn't it? And so if we apply that to our, to our lives, in some way we, we could say, now the, the illustration isn't completely, um, there, there's, there's holes in the illustration, but you get what I'm saying. God, He intends darkness and suffering and, and, and those shades, you could say, in our lives so that we can see His glory much more clearly. We can see His mercy. We can see His compassion. We can see His justice. We can see His love shine forth on the canvas of our lives. It's for His glory. And a similar reason is given when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in two, two chapters later. As you may recall, Lazarus is sick. And if you read that passage, Jesus delays in coming to him. And what you, you read later on is the people around him that say, well, okay, if this man could, could heal a blind man, could he have not have kept this man from dying? And to a degree, they were right. Jesus could have kept the man from dying. He could have prevented all the suffering. You think of Mary and Martha who were weeping for their brother who, di who died, who had to embalm him and, and go through that suffering. Jesus could have prevented that totally. But Jesus says, in that passage, He says, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through Lazarus' death. And we know that in the story because Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so God uses the death of Lazarus as an occasion for Christ to reveal God's power over death when Christ raised him. And so our suffering, Jesus is saying, our suffering is an occasion for God's work. But for an order for our suffering to be an occasion for God's work, it requires the power and the work of Christ. Verse 5, it says, Jesus says, I am, so he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So for our suffering to be a platform for God's glory, for there to be a greater purpose in it, Jesus must be central. Jesus must shine His light. He is the only one who can bring light in the darkness of our lives. And this is the amazing comfort in the Gospel. Because of Jesus, our suffering isn't meaningless. 
But rather, through Christ's power, through faith in Him, our suffering is an occasion for God to show glory, His glory in our lives, even as we go through life with the weaknesses of our flesh. Even as we struggle. It means that when people see us, and when people see you and me suffer, when they see a young person struggle through their chemo treatment or an older man suffer through the chemo treatment for cancer, and when they persevere, they see Jesus shining light in the darkness. When a person sees someone persevering as they move from bed to their wheelchair and they continue to have faith in Jesus, they see Jesus shining light in the darkness. When they see someone struggling with their sins daily and fighting against the temptations that they they experience every day, they see Jesus shining light in the darkness. They will see His light as we all become lights of Jesus Christ. And so we may be afflicted in every way, but because of Jesus shining light in the darkness, we are not crushed. We may be perplexed by our suffering, but because of Jesus, we will not be driven to despair. That is the beauty here, that God has purpose in the darkness. And it's in the darkness that He shines the light of Jesus Christ. Now maybe you are here this morning and you are suffering from the consequences of your sins. Maybe sins from your youth. Maybe sins as a father or sins as a mother or or sins as a spouse or as a child. And maybe you look at your life and you say, I've messed up. Just look at my life. You know exactly why you are suffering this way. You You can tell, look what I've done. You can tell that you're suffering because of the consequences of your sins. Well, the beauty of the passage is not only that Jesus' light shines in the suffering when we experience the brokenness of life in terms of of illness and disease, in terms of the breakdown of our bodies, and when people do wicked things to us and we're able to persevere in that, but Jesus' light also shines when we suffer from the consequences of our own sins. And so if this is you, know that Christ's light can shine there too. When you believe in Christ, when you cling to His work on the cross, when you cling to that work on the cross where He suffered for your sins and carried the weight of your sins through faith in Him, even as you suffer the consequences of your sins, even in that, Jesus will use that to display the glory of God. And so believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Cling to Him. And you will see the light of His grace shining in your suffering. Now as you read the verses 4-5, through you get a sense of urgency in Jesus' words. You see, as Jesus displays uh, the, the work of God, He is doing God's work, bringing glory to Him. And He says, for this was His purpose. He says that. He says, for we must work the works of Him who sent me. Jesus is on a mission, you could say. He is doing the works of God. He's revealing the glory of God. As he says in John 6, verse 38, he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but I've come down from heaven. Why? To do the will of him who sent me. 
And so he's come to do the work of God. But there's urgency. There's urgency. Time is running out, you could say. Jesus says, while it is day, we must work. We must do the works of him who sent me. While it is day. And then he says that the darkness is coming, that night is coming. And then again in verse 5, he says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So you get a sense that there's this urgency in the passage. And so at this point in the gospel, Jesus is getting closer and closer to the cross. So Jesus is at Jerusalem. And later on, he would go back to Jerusalem and he would be killed. He would be nailed to a cross. And so Jesus knows that his time is coming. He knows that his time is coming. He's nearing the end of his earthly ministry. And so it's time for him to continue to display the works of God. And that time is coming to an end. So he has to seize the moment. He knew that night was coming when Judas would betray him. When Judas would betray him and he would be arrested and he'd be crucified, nailed to a cross. And so this motivates him to make every opportunity to do his father's work, to work while it is day because night is coming. And there's application here for us as well. If this is true for Jesus, how much is this also true for us? You see, what's amazing in this passage is that Jesus includes the disciples in his work He says, we must work the works of him who sent me. And then he says, I am the light of the world. So we see there that Jesus is central in shining the light of the darkness. But what he does is he includes his disciples in that. Jesus is the center of God's work of salvation, but the disciples are with him in that work. And this, as they walk with him, this would be, you could say, not, not in completely the model, but they would follow in his footsteps when Jesus rises to heaven. In another place, Jesus says, just think of Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. He says that to his followers, you are the light of the world. So brothers and sisters, what that means is that the Spirit, the Spirit has been poured out on us. So that we would also shine as lights in the darkness. That reflecting Jesus, we would shine His light in our lives. You see, God calls us to be a witness in this world. To to be a testimony of His, His work in our lives. To display His work. But night is coming, isn't it? Night is coming when we won't be able to work. When our lives will will draw to a close. We don't know when God will call us home. Like Jesus knew. Jesus knew when this time was coming. He said that multiple times. It happened because His time hadn't come. But we don't. You see, it's easy for us to hear the gospel week in and week out. And to put it off. We know that we are called to do the work of God here in the world and in our own homes and in our workplaces and wherever God puts us. But we can think, well, I'll do that later. We can reason to ourselves that it's it's okay, I'll become more serious about my faith, I'll become more serious about being active maybe in the church, doing the works of God later on in life. I can put that off for a time. But brothers and sisters, night is coming. 
And I appeal also to those amongst us who do not have a relationship with Christ and keep putting it off because, well, at the end of the day, they have time. But you don't know when the night is coming, when God will call you home. And it's easy, especially for us, for for young people in our midst to do that. You're at the beginning of your lives, you could say, and and maybe you're, you're in your teens, and you see your life ahead of you, and you think that you have all the time in the world. And it's so easy to think that way. But we have no idea, do we, when God will call us home. And it's so easy for us to think, well, you know, I can just live my life. I can do what I want to do. I can, I can go out and, and live a way that is displeasing to God. But later on in life, I'll become way more serious. That's when I'll take faith seriously. But our passage is showing us that there's urgency in doing the work of God. Our passage is showing us that there's urgency in clinging to Jesus Christ. We cannot put that off. We do not want to be there and say, if only I had another day, if only I had another hour, then I would have served God. Rather, instead, take every opportunity now. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ and find rest for your soul and live for the glory of God in your life. Make the most of the daytime so that you can say, as long as I am in the world, I will shine reflecting the light of Jesus, the light of the world wherever I'm at. For when Jesus shines the light in the darkness, when He shines His light in our lives and we become lights through the the power of the Spirit in us, the darkness of suffering and sin will will not overcome the light. And that brings us to our final point. Jesus overcomes the dark. Sometimes it happens when we think about the suffering in this, in this world and when we experience suffering, that we can, we can get a sense that in the end, sin, will ha- sin and suffering will have its final say. That sin and suffering will have the last word. That the battle, you could say, between good and evil will ultimately be won by the fall into sin. We can, we can sense that. Even though we, we have, may have gone to catechism study, we know that God is king and that Jesus is sovereign, that he's triumphed, we can sometimes get that sense, can't we? But dear brothers and sisters, our text this morning declares, declares to us something very different. Something very different than what our hearts can say. Jesus says in, one, in, in John 1 verse 5, sorry, John says in John 1 verse 5, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that is exactly what we see in the last verses of our text, in verses 6 and 7. Jesus, He says that He's the light of the world, and now He demonstrates it in the life of this blind man. Verse 6 and 7 says, Having said these things, He spit on the ground, He made mud with the saliva. Then He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so He went and washed and came back seeing. He went and washed and came back seeing. This man was blind from birth. Just think about that. Just try to put yourself in his shoes for a moment. That means that he never saw colors. He never knew that grass was green. He never knew that dandelions were yellow. He never knew on a cloudless day that the, that the sky was blue. 
Even to describe the clouds to him would have been hard. Light and color, which enables us so much to experience life, was cut off for him. Now, maybe he was able to, to somewhat sense light, but for the most part of his life, he was in darkness. Darkness was all that he knew. He was shut off. Think about if if you were just if you had if you could only close your eyes for a full day. You're so dependent on everybody else around you. You're dependent on any, everybody else around you, and you and you have to listen. And you're closed up. You can't. You're stuck in your own thoughts all the time. That's how you perceive the world. But in this miraculous encounter with Christ, this man is healed. You can almost imagine him. He's going off. He's going on his way to the pool of Siloam. Maybe he has one of those canes where he's touching around. And you can almost imagine him stumbling on his way there. And then he washes in the pool and he's healed. And that stick gets left behind. And he can walk and he can see. He can see everybody. He can see the colors of their clothes. He can see the colors of their, of their hair and, and, their, and their eyes. He can see everything. It's an amazing display of Jesus' power. He sees light. And now it's important for us to, to pay careful attention to the way that, that Jesus heals this blind man. Because if you read through the, the Bible, especially the Gospels, you see that in, in the various miracles that Jesus performs, that sometimes He'll just speak to someone and that person is healed. Think of those moments when He says, Rise, your faith has made you well. Or think of when he heals the paralytic. He says to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And in that moment after Jesus says that, the man takes up his bed and he walks. But in other times, say for example in Mark 1 verse, verse 40, uh, 40 to 45, where Jesus heals a leper, he touches the man and the man is healed. So sometimes he just speaks the word to them and they're healed. And other times he touches them. And here he does something that's almost a little bit strange. He bends down, he spits into the mud, into the dust, and he makes mud in his hands. He kneads it. And then he takes that mud, and then he puts it on that man's eyes. But even then, he's not healed yet, is he? He still has to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So it's kind of odd. But congregation, this act that Jesus does to heal this man says something very beautiful about our Savior. The word that is translated here for for mud is also the word that typically refers to clay. Refers to clay, the clay that is used in pottery. Now if you read through the Bible, maybe you can almost hear those passages where God describes Himself as a potter and us as clay, as the pots that He molds. Think of Job 10 verse 9 where where Job says, You have made me like clay. And all of this is actually an echo going right back to the beginning in Genesis 2 verse 7 where God forms man. So in Genesis 2 where it it accounts the, the creation of man, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 2 we read, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils and man became a living creature. God formed him from the dust. 
He molded him. He shaped him like a potter shapes clay. But then you go to Genesis 3, and despite the beauty of of God's creation, despite the beauty of His handcrafted creatures, because of the fall into sin of Adam and Eve, creation is shattered, you could say. It's ruined. It's broken. It's subject to death. And so now, instead of these beautiful creations of God, there is sin, there is suffering, there is darkness. And so just look at this man's life. And so just think of that miracle again. So here is this man. He's blind from birth. And Jesus, he takes mud, clay, and he anoints his eyes and he restores what is broken. He makes mud from the dust of the ground Just like God made man from the dust of the ground, he anoints his eyes, the man washes, and he is cleansed. He is healed. He recreates this fallen creation. And so what we see in this verse is just as God brings light and life in the darkness in in the, the first book of Genesis, when he created the world, so we see Jesus here in the pages of John. He's bringing life. And he's bringing light out of darkness, recreating what was broken through the fall, recreating what was destroyed through the fall into sin. The light shines and God's creation is restored. And this is a beautiful picture of what's to come for us as people living in this fallen world. It's a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. You know, every time you see a miracle in the Gospels, you see the future the future new heavens and the earth almost breaking into the present when Jesus heals someone. And all of it comes through Jesus Christ. It points us to the new heavens and the new earth where we will be free from sin and suffering. When those of us here who have wheelchairs will be able to walk in the new heavens and the new earth. When those of us here who who suffer from illness and the breakdown of our bodies will stand before God anew. When we here battle with sin, we will stand before God free from sin and free from suffering. This is the glorious future that awaits us. And this is the glorious future that we see in this passage here, in the healing of this blind man. But brothers and sisters, it's not only for the future. It's not only for the new heavens and the new earth. Because Jesus' light shines also in our life here in the present. Maybe we might ask, well, how? How does, what does it mean now? What does it mean about this glorious future? How does that, what does that mean for us now? How is Jesus' light overcoming the darkness in our lives already today? Well, we can see that. We can see that in the various medical advancements when people are being healed. We can see it when people persevere despite their suffering. That's Jesus overcoming the darkness. Because ordinarily, people would despair in suffering. And when people are in the midst of of various handicaps and they persevere in faith, well, that's Jesus overcoming the darkness already in our lives today. And when in the midst of our sins, we continue to battle battle against our temptations, that's Jesus overcoming the darkness already in our lives today. 
And it gives us hope of that future that we just talked about, where we can be confident that ultimately Jesus has triumphed over darkness and he will triumph, where we will experience the new heavens and the new earth. And so, brothers and sisters, what we've seen already is that Jesus has showed us that there is, that there is a greater purpose in our suffering than just the punishment of God. Now, it is true that sometimes we experience the consequences of our sin, but here in this passage, Jesus reveals that there's more going on. There's more going on. That God actually uses our suffering as an occasion to use our lives as a platform to reveal His glory, to shine His light. And we have also seen that Jesus overcomes the darkness. And so as I close this sermon, I want to leave you with this. So Jesus says here that I am the, He says, I am the light of the world. But then he also says that the night is coming. And as we saw, it's referring to his crucifixion. But there's an amazing reference when we go to the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. Because Jesus has promised that he will dwell with us in the new heavens and the new earth. Where there will be no death, where there will be no, no suffering, where there will be no crutches, where there will be no hearing impairments or learning disabilities, or moral failures, or sin, or, or guilt, or shame. And what does Revelation 21 say about the, the new heavens and the new earth? It says that there's no need for a sun. Why? Because the glory of God and Jesus is the light. And then it says there, it says, and there will be no night there, because Jesus will shine in the darkness the darkness will not overcome it. There will be no night, just light of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. Amen. Let us now come before God and and pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we live in a broken world filled with pain and suffering. And we know that the whole of creation groans under the weight of sin, waiting for a day when it will be restored. And we confess that it was our sin that that made this world subject to death and suffering and pain. But Father, we give thanks to you. You you do not leave us there. But you have sent Jesus Christ into the world to display your glorious work You have not just left us, but rather Jesus has come. He's the light of the world and He is shining in the darkness. And we praise You that we can already experience this in our lives now. So God, we ask that You would use our life, that we would shine as lights in a fallen world, that we would display the power of Christ at work in our lives in the midst of our sufferings. And Father, if we are suffering, may you be near to us. Help us not to despair in it, but to lift our eyes to Jesus. And may the things that afflict us and may the things of this earth fall away. May they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and of his grace. Watch over us, we pray, in the rest of this day. Gather us again here to hear the proclamation of your word and to worship and glorify your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us now sing in response hymn.
417 verses 1, 2, and 3, and also hymn 516.